Well, good morning. It's good to see you all once again, and it's good to be with you. We are starting a brand new series here from the book of Matthew called The King. So over the next several weeks, as we lead up to the Christmas season, we're going to be reflecting on the kingship of Jesus based on Matthew's gospel. And we're going to start in a little bit of an unusual place here today. We're going to start in the genealogy. Good times, huh? Good times. How many of you have heard a message on a genealogy before? All right. Okay, good. Good. We've got some real uh, commando Christians in here. Yeah, that's good. So if you've read the old, the old King James Bible, this is the section where it says all of Matthew's begats. We're not going to do the begats today. I know that it will break Pastor Rod's heart. He just loves the voice of the king there. Yeah, that's, that's lovely. Uh, but we are going to be reading here from this pastor. Take your Bible if you want to and turn to Matthew chapter 1. Let's pray and then we will jump right in this morning. Father, we thank you for the opportunity to open your word. And I pray once again that you would speak freshly to us. We need you. Lord, we need you. Let that not be words, but let that be the confession of our heart that we are leaning in. We are seeking to hear your voice. Lord, would you hide me behind the cross of Christ? Would you exalt the king? Lift him up today. Cause the name of Jesus to be captivating and cherished by your people. We pray this in the name that is above every name. Amen. Part of the Arthurian legend, King Arthur of Camelot, is the story of the sword and the stone. You guys heard this before? So, so kind of the story goes like this. There's this sword magically embedded in a stone. And all these people come along and try to pull it out, and they can't budget because the legend says that only the true and rightful king can pull the sword out from the stone. And along comes Arthur. And without any effort, without any extra, uh, extra extraneous details, he simply grabs hold of the stone, sword and he pulls it free of the stone, proving that he is the true and rightful king. In a sense, that is exactly what Matthew's genealogy is doing. Far from being a section of scripture that are, we're just meant to skim, or God forbid, we just skip over. How many of your Bible readings you have skipped over the genealogies before? True confessions, raise your hand. The rest of you are liars or have never read the Bible. One of the two, right? The purpose of this genealogy is to demonstrate that Jesus is the true and rightful king. In fact, did you know that's the purpose of all of Matthew's gospel? Have you ever stopped to wonder why there are four what we call gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John? A gospel is essentially a short biography of the life of Jesus. So why include four of them? Well, the reason is that each of the gospel writers had a slightly different intent and a slightly different audience in mind. For instance, Luke, the beloved physician, um, focused on Jesus' humanity 
and he does so focusing on a Gentile audience. On the other hand, Mark, who was very much a Roman, uh, focused on the, a Roman audience and about the servant leadership of Christ. But Matthew, Matthew is a very Jewish book. In other words, Matthew is trying to prove to Jewish readers that Jesus is the one true messianic king that the whole Old Testament points to. In fact, Matthew quotes or alludes to the Old Testament more than any of the other Gospels, about 50 times. That's roughly twice a chapter, where Matthew is going back to the Old Testament, back to the Old Testament, and saying to his Jewish readers, look, see this king that you're looking for, it's Jesus. Look, this king that you're looking for, it's Jesus. Matthew's whole point of his Gospel is to prove that Jesus is the one true king. This is the purpose of why Matthew starts with the genealogy. Because in a sense, he is trying to establish Jesus as the rightful heir to the throne. Here's what we need to understand. When you read the Bible, Jesus is our Savior. That's absolutely true. Praise God for that. But we also have to understand that when we read the Bible, Jesus is also our Sovereign. He is both our Savior, the one who came and died on the cross for us, and also our Sovereign, the one who has the right and the might to rule over his people together. Don't get it twisted. Jesus is both of those things in one person. He is the saving Sovereign and the Sovereign Savior. We are meant to see this by looking at the Gospel of Matthew and his genealogy. But what's interesting is that these ancestral records do not just give Jesus bona fides. It also subtly tells us what type of king Jesus is. It hints at not just that Jesus is the rightful heir, but the type of king Jesus is. He's not a powerful yet cruel tyrant like Attila the Hun. He, he's not a eccentric but well-meaning king like Ludwig of Bavaria. Anybody know who he is? Go look it up. It's interesting. As the Gospels make plain, not now, not now. Don't look it up now. Do you hear me? Turn off the Wi-Fi, Brady, right now. Yeah, shut, shut it down. Yeah. As the Gospels make plain, Jesus is in a king. It is in a category all by himself. He's a king like no other king. He is powerful, yet compassionate. He is strong, yet humble. He is wise, yet approachable. You see, the title King of Kings is both a declaration of Jesus' rank. He's the king over all kings, but also of his reputation. He is a king par excellence of kings. The King of Kings is both King of Kings in rank and in reputation. And this is foreshadowed in Matthew's genealogy. Which leads me to my point this morning. We must see Jesus as our king. Now when I say see, that word, we must see Jesus as our king. I don't just mean recognize or acknowledge. That's not what I'm talking about. I mean a deeper kind of seeing. You know, one definition of the word see is to understand the significance of something. That's what I'm talking about. I want us to understand the significance of Jesus being our king. There's a wonderful little um, episode in John's gospel that I think illustrates this really well. 
Jesus has just been baptized, and John the Baptist points to the Lord and says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Standing there with John the Baptist are two disciples of John who would go on to become disciples of Jesus. It was John, the one who wrote the Gospel of John, and also Andrew. And they hear John the Baptist say, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And basically to John the Baptist, they're like, deuces, we're out. You said, this is the guy, we're going with this guy. John didn't have any issue with that because he had also said he must increase and I must decrease. So off go Peter and John. And it's very awkward, by the way. I don't know if they're like hands in their pockets or if you had pockets in your tunics, I don't know. They're kind of shuffling their feet, and they're like, you talk to them. No, you talk to them. No, you talk to them. And finally, one of them is like, um, I don't know what to say. Where do you live? That's their question. Like, they got the Lamb of God in front of them, and they go, where do you live? And Jesus answers them rather cryptically with a double entendre. He says this, come, and you'll see. Now, at one level, Jesus means like, follow me, and I will show you where I'm living. But he means something more, doesn't he? He basically says, follow me, give your life to me, give your allegiance to me, and you will see who I am. That's what I'm talking about. I don't want us to just acknowledge that Jesus is the king. Sometimes if you've been around the church at all, we can throw away the phrase like Jesus Christ. You know, Christ is not his name, it's a title. It means king or Messiah or the Lord Jesus Christ. Those aren't his name, that's a title of who he is. It is his position. So I want us this morning to seek to embrace, to see, to really see who Jesus is as our king and the implications that has for our lives. So can you lean in just a little bit? Can you incline your heart and say, Lord, open our eyes that we may behold wondrous things from your law. Maybe you should just pray that right now. Lord, open our eyes that we might see Jesus freshly. I think both the human and divine authors of this genealogy intended us to have an, oh, I see moment. So that's my prayer for us this morning. So what are we meant to see? What are we meant to see about the character of Jesus from this genealogy? Let's see. Let's look. The genealogy of Jesus Christ, number one. Jesus is the king for all time. The genealogy starts out by highlighting Jesus' connection to two of the most significant figures in Israel's history, David and Abraham. Follow along with me on the screen if you would. Verse 1, an account of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of, what's it say? David, the son of so right out of the jump, Matthew is making the connection between Jesus and these two people, David and Abraham. Then you go back in the genealogy, and in verse number 2 and in verse number 6, respectively, Abraham and David appear again. 
So why is Matthew emphasizing Jesus' ancestral ties to, do, to these two figures in particular? The answer is that Matthew is seeking to show us that Jesus is not just a king of Israel, he is the king of Israel. Okay, that's what's going on here. He's not just trying to show us that like he has the right to sit on the throne. He's trying to highlight that he is the son of David, the son of Abraham, and this is the person for which the nation of Israel has been waiting all of these centuries. In fact, in verse number 17, the last verse in this section, he proves it and says it explicitly. Look at what it says. So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations. And from David into the exile to Babylon, 14 generations. And from the exile to Babylon until the, what's it say? Messiah, who is Jesus, 14 generations. What is Matthew doing? He's trying to say, look, Jesus is not just a king. He's the Messiah. He's the Christ. He's the one you have been waiting for, and I am going to prove it to you by showing his ancestral heritage. That term Messiah is a significant one. For if you read the Old Testament, you would come to the understanding, if you just read the Old Testament as a Jew during all of these millennia, you just read it, you would walk away with the understanding that one day God was going to send a deliverer king, a Messiah, the Christ, who would be a descendant of both Abraham and a descendant of David. You say, where do you get that, Ryan? Well, it starts back at the very beginning. You know, at the very first book in the Bible, in Genesis chapter 22, God shows up and he speaks to Abraham. And he begins to make this promise to Abraham that there is a one day coming Messiah, a deliverer, a king, a rescuer, who would not just rescue Abraham, but who would rescue the whole world. Genesis chapter 22, verse number 14, or 17, I'm sorry. I will indeed bless you, this is God speaking to Abraham, and, your, and make your offspring as numerous as the stars of the sky and the sand on the seashore. Your offspring will possess the city gates of their enemies, and look at this, and all the nations of the earth will be blessed by your offspring. Okay, think with me for a minute. If you're Abraham and you're hearing this, your first inclination is that the word offspring here is referring probably to Isaac, the son of promise, and then like his descendants. So the nation of Israel as a sense. And that's true. There is an application to Isaac, and there is an application to the nation of Israel. But then you get to the New Testament. And the Apostle Paul says, oh, 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 oh. Actually, the Apostle Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, the author of this passage in the first place, is like, wait, wait, wait. If you're just looking at Isaac, if you're just looking at the nation of Israel, you've got your sights set too low. Look at Galatians chapter 3, verse number 16. Now, the promises that we just read were spoken to Abraham and to his seed, or to his offspring. Same word. He does not say to his seeds, plural, as though referring to many, but referring to one and to your seed. Look at the screen. Who is? What? What? 
Essentially, Paul is saying this promise that all the nations would be blessed through the offspring of Abraham is a reference to Jesus. And then Matthew is saying, oh, and by the way, this guy that I'm talking about, he's the seed of Abraham. He is the descendant of Abraham. But it actually gets even better. Several centuries after Abraham, God makes another promise, this time to, guess who? David. The other guy mentioned in that first verse. So to David, here is what the Lord says. 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse number 11. The Lord declares to you, the Lord himself will make a house for you. When your time comes and you rest with your ancestors, I will raise up after you a descendant who will come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for my name. Pause. If you're David right now, you're thinking this primarily refers to who? Solomon, your son. Now it does refer to Solomon, but there is a further fulfillment as well. How do you know? Look at the next phrase. And I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Your house and your kingdom will endure before me. What's it say? Your throne will be established. Notice the theme. David is saying, or God is saying to David, you will have a descendant who will be the king forever. So God promised that the whole world would be blessed through the seed of Abraham. Galatians tells us that that seed is Christ. Now God promised that there will be a descendant of David who will sit on the throne forever. Who is that person? Luke chapter 1, verse number 32. Jesus will be great, and he will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give him the throne of his Father. What's it say? Matthew's genealogy is meant to show us that these ideas, this idea of the seed of Abraham who will bless the entire world, this idea of this king who will reign and have a throne forever, come together in one person, and his name is Jesus. You ever heard the statement, all roads lead to Rome? You ever heard that before? You know, they recently did some study on that and kind of did an aerial view, and, and this is what the map looks like. It's actually true, at least in Europe. All roads actually do kind of make their way to Rome. Some go in a straight line, some twist and turn, but eventually all roads work their way to their origin point in Rome. I bring this up because I think you could make a little bit of a theological adaptation of that principle, and it is simply this. When you read all of the promises of the Old Testament, all promises eventually lead to Christ. In fact, the Apostle Paul says this explicitly in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse number 20. For every one of God's promises is yes in Christ. All of these beautiful and rich promises 
that tell us about the forever king who will reign and rule and set his people free on so many different levels, find their way, they snake their way through the Old Testament and find their fulfillment in the person and work of Jesus. Friends, never, ever, 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 ever read the Old Testament without Christ in mind because if you are not seeing Jesus in the Old Testament, you are not reading your Bibles properly. The Bible from cover to cover is a book about Jesus, all the promises, all of the promises, the promise to Abraham and his seed, the promise to David and his throne are made fulfilled in Jesus Christ. What the genealogy is demonstrating is that the Messiah King is Jesus and Jesus alone. He is the seed of Abraham through whom all the world will be blessed. He is the son of David whose kingdom will endure forever. He is the root of Jesse to whom the whole world will look. He is the scepter of Judah who will never relinquish his throne. He is the ruler from Jacob that will crush the enemies of God's people. He is the child born to the Virgin Mary that is God himself come in the flesh. Jesus is God's forever king and his eternal reign has always been God's plan. There is no plan B. Friends, here's my question. Do you see it? Do you see it? King Jesus is not just to be admired. He is to be adored. We're not just supposed to say, well, that's a cool story. We are to fall down on our face and worship God's forever king. This has always been God's plan to send his son into the world to rule and reign over the people of God for all eternity. And by the way, he's not just a king, he's the best king. His kingdom will be beautiful and perfect and flawless in every way. And the name of Jesus will be exalted as our king for all eternity. Do you see it? Number two, what are we supposed to learn from this genealogy or how are we supposed to see Jesus? We're not just supposed to see him as God's forever king or the king for all time. We are supposed to see that Jesus is the king for all people. You might hear what I said and be like, oh, but, you know, this idea of a Messiah, isn't that a Jewish concept? Well, that's true. But first of all, that's not, Jesus is not just the king for the Jews, he's the king for all people, because this is embedded in all of the many promises that I just read for you. Did you see it over and over again? Jesus will be a blessing, it says, to all the nations of the earth. And he will be a banner for the peoples. Peoples means the nations, all peoples. He will, and it says, the nations will look to him for guidance. Jesus is not just the king of the Jews. Jesus is the king of all humanity. This is not just explicit in those promises, but it's also subtly implied in the genealogy. For in addition to including familiar names of kings like David and Solomon and Hezekiah, Included in this list of Jesus' ancestry, sprinkled throughout, are also names like Tamar and Rahab and Ruth. 
Well, what do those names have in common? Well, one, they're all women, for one. But secondly, they're also non-Jewish. All three of those people are not from Jewish ancestry. Well, what's the implication? It's simply this. The kingdom of God is for all kinds of people. Entrance into the kingdom of God doesn't come through some sort of genetic predisposition or ethnic identity. Entrance into the kingdom of God comes by bowing before King Jesus. And it's for everyone. And this is why multi-ethnic ministry matters, by the way. Look, you know what? You can talk to Pastor Rod and I about this. Multi-ethnic ministry is hard. It's hard. Because people come from different backgrounds and have different experiences and different perspectives. So it's hard. So we are constantly navigating tensions. We are constantly trying to say, okay, that's important, but it's not primary. Okay, that's also important. That's not primary. Okay, we hear you. We empathize with you. But make sure let's keep the gospel, let's keep the work of Jesus Christ above that. You know why? Because the gospel of Jesus Christ is a message for all peoples. It doesn't matter your history doesn't matter your background. It doesn't matter where you're from or where, what your ancestry is. The gospel of Jesus Christ is the most applicable message in the world. That's good news. I don't know what I would do if it was a niche religion. It doesn't skip over cultures. It's for all cultures. We need to embrace this wholeheartedly and say, you know what unites us? It's not where we were born, it's not where we're from, it's not our experiences, it's not the color of our skin or the texture of our hair. What unites us is we serve the same king. His name is Jesus. And we bow before him because he is the king of every tribe and tongue and people and nation. God's vision is global. The Father sent Jesus into the world not just to rule over a little tract of land by the Mediterranean Sea. God didn't just send Jesus into the world to influence a region of the world. God sent his son into the world to rule over the whole universe. God's heart is larger than one ethnicity. God loves people made in his image with all their beautiful diversity that is part of his design. And if that's the heart of our king, that should be our heart as well. God loves people. Listen, maybe this is most clearly displayed in the future vision of Christ sitting on his throne, ruling in his kingdom. Here's what it says, Revelation chapter 7, verse number 9. And after this, I looked, and there was a vast multitude, listen, from every tribe and every nation and every people and every language which no one could number. And why are they united? Because they are standing before the throne and before the Lamb. The world, the world will be redeemed through the work of the King. If you don't like diversity, you might not like heaven. 
because Jesus died to redeem a people for himself from all over the planet. Jesus is the hope for all humanity. If you wanna be a part of this kingdom, all you gotta do is be human and bow before the king. I don't know what that does to the theology of all dogs go to heaven, but I'm sorry. There's another nuance here. When I say that Jesus is the king of all people, I don't just mean like all ethnicities or all nations. I mean something else as well. And I think the text means it. Jesus is also the king of people from all kinds of different backgrounds and all kinds of different past. Here's what I mean. Put a little creative hat on for a second. If you were God and were planning who would be in the family line of humanity's forever king? Perhaps you would only include those whose lives were pristine. Like you would choose the best of the best, as it were, and say like, oh, well, that person shouldn't be in this line because, man, they're kind of a hot mess. And so you would put kind of the best people in line. But this is not what we see in the genealogy of the Savior. While there are certainly some among this list who the Bible only tells us good things about, like Zerubbabel. I mean, he's kind of a hero in the scripture. No bad thing reported about Zerubbabel or, or Boaz. I mean, there's nothing bad or negative that we read about Boaz in scripture. However, along with kind of examples of people who lived a very righteous life, included in this list of people are people that experienced a lot of brokenness, either by their own hands or by the hands of another. There, there are people in this list whose lives are not pristine. They either sinned or were sinned against. For instance, let's take Abraham, right? The father of our faith, who was a former moon worshiper and also had this habit of repeatedly lying about his wife to save his own skin. Take Jacob. The name Jacob actually means deceiver. And if you read the biblical account, he lived up to that reputation. Judah was brutal. Tamar, who's also um, mentioned in this passage, that whole story of Judah and Tamar, it, it's almost R-rated. It is R-rated, in fact. It reads like the worst reality TV show. It's like a reality TV show and a daytime soap opera had a baby. It's a terrible, terrible story of brutality. And yet Judah is listed. Rahab. Well, before turning to the Lord, she was a Canaanite prostitute. Ruth was an idolater and a widow who lost her husband. She wasn't immune to the heartbreak of life. David had the whole incident with Bathsheba, right? Along with many other failures. And I don't think it's any coincidence that Bathsheba is not mentioned by name by here. She's simply referred to as Uriah's wife. Ouch, David. Well, we keep going and we read about Solomon. He started out great, but then drifted by the end of his life into outright blatant idolatry. Rehoboam was at the helm when the kingdom got divided. Manasseh was about the worst king in Judah's history. Josiah, in spite of all his zeal for the Lord, died in an act of supreme hubris. And finally, we get to Mary and Joseph unknowns from an insignificant, out-of-the-way place whose firstborn child appeared to be conceived under the most questionable of circumstances. Here's the idea. God can work through paragons 
and pariahs. That's good news for us because we all got brokenness, right? We all come to the table with brokenness. Your entrance into the kingdom, your being part of the kingdom of God, part of God's plan, part of his family, dare I say, is not based on the things that you do for God. It's not based on, World Cup fans, a clean sheet. It's not based on you doing all the right things, but it is rather based on the grace and the mercy of the King. If I could say it another way, acceptance by God is not based on your performance for God, but on His performance for you. Who is welcome into the kingdom of Christ? It is anyone and everyone, regardless of your history, regardless of your failures, regardless of the train wreck that you have made of your life, who will simply bow your knee to the king. So bow. I don't know what junk you bring to the table. I got my own junk. Bring it and lay it at the feet of Jesus and you're in. Because the king is not just the king forever. He is the king for anyone and everyone who would be bold enough, who would be courageous enough to leave their past behind them and bow down before King Jesus. Come, come to the king. He will accept you not based on what you have done, but based on what he has done for you. This is not just the message of Matthew. It's not just the message of the genealogy. It's the message of the whole Bible. You see, in the garden, Adam and Eve wanted to live as their own king. Right? And in so doing, they plunged their progeny into rebellion. Friends, the planet Earth is a rebel state right now. But God was not content to leave his people without the king that they needed. So he hatched the rescue plan of the ages. And through time, human kings have come and they've gone. Some of them have been good and most of them have not. But our hearts yearn, hey, when is there gonna be a king that fixes this mess? When is a king gonna rescue us? When is the deliverer going to come? So one day, the father and the son agreed. And the son came to earth to do what the true king alone could do. But when he came, he didn't look like the king that everybody expected, but friends, rest assured, he was the king we needed. For the kingdom he brought was a kingdom that had no end. For when Jesus, the Messiah King, he came to deliver his people, not from a political enemy, not from a national enemy, but from an enemy that no one else could defeat. He came to defeat sin and death itself. But listen to my words so closely, the triumph over such enemies demands great sacrifice. The price for defeating death was death. Listen to the words of Revelation. Then I saw in the right hand 
of the one seated on the throne, a scroll with writing on both sides, sealed with seven seals. And I also saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seal, but no one in heaven or earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or even to look in it. I wept and wept because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or even look at it. Heaven mourns the lack of the king. Who will save us? Who is worthy to undo what the curse has done? Who will be our king? Then one of the elders said to me, do not weep. Look, the lion from the tribe of Judah, the root of David has conquered so that he is able to open the seven seals. How? How did he conquer? How did he become the one who could save humanity once and for all? Then I saw one, look at, like a slaughtered lamb, standing in the midst of the throne and the four living creatures among the elders. He had seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent into all the earth. He went and he took the scroll out of the right hand of the one seated on a throne. And when he took the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb. And each one had a harp and golden bowls filled with incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song. Why? Because their hearts were so filled with joy that the king had come. And what is this song? You are worthy. You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals. Why are you worthy, King Jesus? Because you were slaughtered. And you purchased a people for God by your blood. From every tribe and language and people and nation. You're the king of all people. And what have you done? You have made them a kingdom of priests to God. And they will reign on earth. He's king. He's king. He did what only he could do to ascend, to take his place as the rightful heir of the universe. Jesus died. Do you know this? Jesus died to make you part of the kingdom that he reigns in. That's how much it cost to bring you into his family. To make you part of his kingdom, he shed his blood. The most kingly act that Jesus did was also the most humiliating act. Look, Jesus, Jesus became. <laughs> he is exalted as our, as our ruler because he was first humbled as our ransom. 
He is exalted as our ruler because he was first humbled as our ransom. So again, I ask you the question, do you see? Do you see? Do you see the significance of this work of the king? That he came to reign over you, to rule in your life. Not for a minute, not for a decade, not for a century, but forever. He came to be our king. Have you bowed to his kingship? The only response to this act is simply to say, you're king and I'm not. You reign and I don't. And I'm not talking about, did you walk an aisle one time? Did you pray a prayer? Did you get up in that tank? It's not what I'm saying. I'm not saying like one time, did you ever say in your life, you're king and I'm not. I'm saying today, right now, are you saying you're king and I'm not? And tomorrow, you're saying you're king. I'm not. Or maybe more accurately, three minutes from now, you're king, and I'm not. And 10 minutes from now, you're still king. I'm still not. In fact, maybe the whole posture of our lives should simply be this. You are king. And you have purchased for your people, for yourself, a people from God. For every tribe and tongue and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom of priests. We are yours. Both now and forever. Jesus, you reign. Not just some ethereal kingdom out there somewhere. But you reign here. You reign now. You reign over my priorities. You reign over my decisions. You reign over my home. You reign over my desires. You reign over my sin. You reign over my money. You reign over my family. You are king and I am not. Is that not the declaration of the heart of the followers of Jesus Christ, that he is Lord? Brothers and sisters, do you see it? Do you see the significance of this blood-bought gift of the kingship of Jesus Christ? So let's humbly bow before him right now. I'm going to pray for us, then I'm going to ask us to respond in just a moment. Father, help us to see that you are king. Lord, I don't know where there are pockets of rebellion in our hearts. Where we are not submitting to the lordship of Jesus Christ. But I pray that your people right now would bow before you. Lord, if there are some here who have never bowed their knee to Jesus, I ask right now that you would cause them to bow their knee to the king who died so that anyone and everyone who would ever trust in him could be under his kindly reign. 
Lord, I pray that we would submit to you in this moment. In Christ's name, I pray. Before we sing, here's what I want to ask us to do right now. Maybe you've heard this and you're saying, hey, man, there's an area in my life where I need to submit to the kingship of Christ. And the Lord's speaking to me right now, and I just need to submit to the kingship of Christ. I need him to be my king. I'm gonna ask the band to play quietly for just a minute. And if that's you, would you just raise your hand real quick? Hang on, don't do it yet. Raise your hand real quick. And people around you, they're just gonna put a hand on your shoulder and they're just gonna pray for you. That's it. You don't have to tell them the story, but you are simply saying, I need to submit to King Jesus in my life. Raise your hand and receive prayers from people around you. Do that, great. Put your hand up. Do it quickly. Great, great. All over the room. All right, church, find them, pray for them. Raise your hand. I need to submit to the kingship of Jesus. Find somebody and pray for them. Great. Put your hand up. No need to be embarrassed. Great. Put your hand up. No need to be embarrassed. Father, we bow. We bow. We confess that you are king. We adore you for sending your son who would purchase a people by his death. Lord, build your kingdom, your kingdom come, your will be done in Atlanta as it is in heaven. May your people submit to your kindly rule. Lord, you are king. We praise you, Jesus. We worship the lamb who was slain before the foundation of the world only one worthy to open the scrolls. We give you glory in the precious name of Jesus. Amen. Let's sing to our King together.